What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. Y'all, people today be bugging. The other day I was on the number two train with my friend, just bugging out, having a good time. And people just started staring at us like we were some sort of street girls with no future. Yeah. When I'm with my friends, I act like it don't matter. Because it don't. But between you and me, that shit pisses me off. Hey everyone, this is Represent, and I'm Aisha Harris. Well, as many of our listeners probably already know, we have some news. After more than six years at Slate, I'm moving on to take a job as an editor at the New York Times, which means the represent will be coming to an end, I'm sad to say. Are you sad, Fairlyn? I'm extremely sad. I know. I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss you too. Although in real life. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm not moving away. I'm not moving away. (laughs) I'll still be here. The internet is still a thing. We live in the same borough. I mean, technically it'll be okay. It'll be fine. (laughs) But... So it was a tough decision for me to make, and I'm going to miss working on the show. And with Verilyn, of course, Marissa Martinelli, our great social media manager, and everyone else who has collaborated with us on it for the last almost two years. But this is only the penultimate episode. We'll give ourselves a proper send-off in our final episode next week. So we'll save the nostalgia and full-on goodbyes for then. For now, we're bringing to you two never-before-heard conversations with two Black female filmmakers at different points in their careers. One of the things we've tried to do on the show is not only cover the big stuff, the Me Too's, the blockbusters, and the awards season bait, but the voices that are still trying to be heard in a challenging, not-always-inclusive industry. Well, up-and-coming filmmaker Nikyatu Jusu and veteran director Leslie Harris, who helmed the cult classic Just Another Girl on the IRT, fit that bill exactly. First up is my conversation with Nikiatu, which took place last summer. Nikiatu has directed several short films from the perspectives of Black girls and women, dealing with family secrets, violence against women, and even war. We talked about that and her struggle to find funding for movies like hers. Check it out. Well, welcome to the studio, Nikiatu. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. So I just want listeners to kind of get a sense of your background a little bit and I want to learn a little bit about your background like what you're Sierra Leonean mm-hmm. proudly um, can you talk a little bit about your family and then also how you went from being little you to now like being a filmmaker <laughs> little me I don't think I was ever little uh, <laughs> um, I've been this size ever since I came out oh wow so I know I know <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm definitely Sierra Leonean American. I definitely identify truly as African American. I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, um, to a Sierra Leonean household and a Sierra Leonean community in Atlanta. There's a thriving Sierra Leonean community in Atlanta, Georgia. And I went to Duke University in North Carolina for undergrad, and that's where I stumbled across filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I actually went there for biomedical engineering. Wow. (laughs) African parents, African parents. That's all I have to say about that. And um, yeah, I fell in love. I stumbled into a screenwriting class and completely became immersed in writing for a cinema and then stumbled into some actual filmmaking classes, production courses and um, decided that it was something that I wanted to pursue. And my father let me know that the only way that they would support my passion, my newfound passion, was if I got into a top-tier film school, film program for my master's degree. So I only applied to NYU, and I got in, and it brought me to New York. And uh, the majority of my body of work was created in graduate film school. Mm. And what, so not like USC or UCLA, you're just like not I wanted. I've always wanted to come to New York. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean— it's the masochist in me, like, you know? <laughs> well, you know, I, I also went to NYU for grad school for film, although not filmmaking. I was in the, the cinema studies program. Nice. Um, and I also was deciding between NYU and I, just, I thought about USC, UCLA. And then I decided I'm going to come to NYU. I, I and I, I always wanted to live in New York as well. Yeah. It's friggin' expensive. Where are you from? 
Connecticut. Nice. So nice. it's not it's not that far. It's not too far. Um, but it's still very expensive to live okay. here. Listen. And for your for your parents to like for for your immigrant parents to at least say like go to a top tier filmmaking school, that's that's not too bad. There's lots at of all. parents who will be like No. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? I come from a really quirky family, even amongst Sierra Leoneans. Like my mom is half Lebanese. Mm. Um and she's a writer. And so it wasn't really that much of a long shot yeah. for me to say this is something that I wanted to pursue. Mm-hmm. They were very supportive. I think the fear is just always you want your kid to have a, a stable life. You want them to make as much money as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. I, and I, and I, get, I it. get it. I totally get it. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> that, that actually kind of sounds like my dad because, like, I remember when I was deciding I, I went to – Undergrad, you're just gonna get my life story too. I went to yeah. <laughs> undergrad for theater, and I was deciding between schools. And he's like, he pushed me to go to Northwestern because it was like the top yeah. school. And I was like, this is a lot of money. He's like, it's okay. I'm still paying for those loans, Listen. but you know, <laughs> I I don't regret it. I don't regret it. So I, I, I think I like it. I get it. Yeah. And so you get to NYU, and you studied under Spike Lee, right? He was one of my professors. Yeah. How's that? <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> everyone always says he studied under it. Well, how, no. well, how is he as a professor? Because I'm, I'm curious. He doesn't hold back. You know, he's very, very, very candid. Not surprising. Doesn't bite his tongue. And I did appreciate his, you know, his rawness and his delivery because he's, he's not going to change who he is. He's the same person on set as he is in the classroom, which mm-hmm. I appreciated because a lot of the professors kind of melt into one another at some point. Um, and I just really always appreciated his honesty, um, even when it wasn't so pretty. But <laughs> I was a recipient of one of his grants. So I, I was a recipient of a $10,000 grant for my thesis film. Mm-hmm. And so I got to even interact with him even more because part of that process was him, you know, go, combing through your project and making sure it's the best project that it could be. Mm-hmm. Right. So he 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 was a good he was a good professor. He was a a nice eye opener into what the industry is actually like. So you felt supported by him, especially since you received the grant, not just financially, but like, do you feel as though he provided you with like the tools, or at least like maybe the 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 what's the word like the shell that you need yeah. when being a filmmaker because that is part of what being a filmmaker is is like receiving a lot of criticism absolutely both negative and positive you know what I, I started interacting him with him more in my thesis year but I will say you know there are professors outside of him that were super supportive Mick Casal one of my screenwriting professors Carol Deisinger one of my editing professors so I kind of you know I, I felt very supported overall in the program, which not everyone can say that. You know, everyone has a different experience. And art is very subjective. You just hope that the stories that you're trying to tell are going to be supported by someone. So I think it's, it was a combination of my hard work and, and luck, of course, that mm-hmm. I was supported at NYU. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that thesis film, which was Sacred Before Drowning. Okay. It was very powerful. Um, and, it, and it opens very with like a very striking line about the protagonist or the the lead character's mother, knowing that she had been raped. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about what, where that kernel of an idea came from and how that turned into that film? So it's actually very much based on a cousin of mine that came from Sierra Leone uh, to live with us. There was civil war in Sierra Leone for approximately 10 years, uh, a little bit more than 10 years. And a lot of people died. A lot of people lost families. A lot of people became estranged from their kids. And, you know, during times of civil war, one of the weapons waged against women is rape. Yeah, that's, and, yeah. And so my first cousin, one of my first cousins, came to live with us, and she had a child who was a product of that rape. Um, and they both came together. People tend to lump immigrant journeys into one narrative of, oh, they came to seek a better life. Mm -hmm. But even within those immigrant narratives, there are layers. Like my parents came for education. They came because they won scholarships or they came because they were privileged. And then but we had people in our family who came because they were totally uneducated and totally thrust aside and products of war. So just watching that dynamic within my own family was really compelling. And so 
the story of Say Grace Before Drowning was a direct product of that tense interaction between a mother and a daughter who didn't ask to be here. Both Neither of them asked to be here mm-hmm. under these circumstances. So with regards to your th- your second film that you made while at NYU, African Booty Scratcher. Yes. That also seems like it's a personal film mm-hmm. for you. Can you discuss a bit that like the, the essentially for listeners the the premise of this short film and all of these you can find on Vimeo so we'll like put a link to them um, yeah. on the our, our show page but um, with a- African Booty Scratcher you're it's a um, female protagonist like pretty much all of your work which I love <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't like men <laughs> no I'm joking kind of don't don't add her <laughs> Um, <laughs> who is planning to go to prom, uh, who's planning to go to prom and wants to have the flyest dress yes. and wants to have the the flyest man on her mm-hmm. arm. The man falls through. He like decides he's going to go with someone else. Yeah. And then she gets home from school and her mom has made this beautiful like traditional um, gown for her to wear to right. prom and she's like, I don't want to wear this. Like I'm going to get made fun of. Right. Did that happen to you or to family members or was that just so like... you know what? So parts of there were elements of it that were very uh, literal mm-hmm. translations of my life. But the dress itself was a symbolic representation of me coming very late to accept to embracing my culture. Mommy, do you have any idea what they're going to call me at school? African booty scratcher. African, what is that? What is that? Said to have originated during the mid-1980s, usually denoting a slow, backwards individual of African descent. Someone who stands about and does nothing but scratch their butt. This is very beautiful fabric. Huh? So it kind of represented, it represented very much this shame that I had growing up of being from Africa and the associations with being African and, you know, the same taunts of African booty scratcher that are, were very prevalent. I, they even referenced it in Boys in the Hood, yeah, um, which I, I didn't even that. know until retrospect, mm-hmm. until I started studying cinema and African-American cinema in particular. But I was always embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was ashamed of the sense of the food. I was ashamed of bringing African food to lunch. Um, I was afraid of people hearing my parents' accents. Because, you know, kids can be really cruel and you're just so vulnerable in your identity at that age. So the film, it was kind of like an ode to my culture and an ode to that uh, coming of age period in your life where you truly understand the richness of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what that represented. But I definitely didn't have a date. <laughs> that was that was true. Um, didn't even have a shot at the flies, dude, in the school. So you know, I had to tweak it a little bit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was definitely an ode to my culture. I can't help but feel though that so that I think it was released or it came out in around two thousand seven. Yes. Yeah. So I can't help but feel though if it came out today, like. Because now when I go on Instagram and I'm seeing all these teenagers at prom, they are they are rocking these homemade, like beautiful things. Yeah. And they're getting thousands of likes, yeah. and it's like kind of okay now. At it's least a in, different in certain, time in certain you know communities. Yeah, like, people rep it now. Like, Absolutely, hard. Absolutely. So I I think it's changed for the better in that. And that's mostly yeah. Mostly, I definitely they're definitely so teaching teenagers in, in Brooklyn. Uh, at a predominantly African-American school. So there's very few kids who are even Jamaican-American or or uh, Nigerian-American. Like, kids can't really even trace their lineage, most mm-hmm. of the popu- population. And I think that at the population where I teach, that is a school where kids don't really embrace coming from Africa. Mm. You know, there's still, there's still that those stigmas that are associated with being African and being dark-skinned and all of these things that, you know, I have to continue to work out with my 16 and 17-year-old students. Um, but yes, overall, I think that African culture and African, particularly the tangibles, like African food and African fashion, they're becoming very mainstream, which is exciting to watch on one hand and frustrating on the other hand, because, <laughs> you know, of, of cultural appropriation, um, <clears throat> you know, because of high-end designers taking advantage of the beauty of, of the fabrics and the beauty of the designs. So, 
it's always a double-edged sword when when things become mainstream and become capitalized. Let's move on to another film you made, uh, Black Swan Theory, which uh, I feel like there's between, especially Black Swan Theory and Say Grace Before Drowning, we have black women who we're seeing their their internal struggle in a mm-hmm. way that we're maybe don't usually see in film in terms of you know with Sagris before drowning you have a woman who is, is suffering like from uh recollections of rape and in war and horrors and then you also have in black swan theory we have a woman sonia who is she's also actually dealing with like the repercussions of having been experienced war but on the other side of it in mm-hmm. terms of having killed and been in a in a um like on the combat side of war right and you know i i just think it's really interesting that you you chose to like dig into that that sort of mental headspace and the black swan theory well i'm gonna do like the very very spark notes version of the wikipedia version of the theory but essentially there was uh there's the belief that black swans did not exist and then at some point, they discovered that they did exist. And so essentially, it's like a metaphor for an event that, you know, comes as a, comes as a surprise, has a, a big effect. Mm-hmm. And then, like, people try to over-explain it, like, the, its existence right. with the benefit of hindsight. Absolutely. That was my, That was like, perfect. Yeah, that was my, my thing. That was uh, good. <laughs> so, that I, was really good. I mean, I see... I see lots of layers going on here yeah. because, like, the black woman is sort of always under, I feel like, underestimated or pre- she, she doesn't exist in in film, into, in, in culture. She's, like, ignored. And I don't, I, maybe I'm reading too much into it. No, but this I, is, these are the things I was thinking about, yeah. for sure. Um, I definitely, so I was thinking about just never really hearing about the trauma of black women in war. In, in the army, in the military, serving for this country, when the numbers, as I started to do research, were staggering as to how victimized they were amongst their within their ranks. Um, but also I was thinking about just the anom- being a, feeling like an anomaly as a black woman in general in certain spaces and feeling like the experiences that you experience, the microaggressions, the isolation are... Were, are often overlooked by others, by both black men and white people in general and non just non-black people in general. Um, so I was thinking about all of these themes as, as I decided to write Black Swan Theory. And I actually had a feature version that I was trying to develop, but you know how that goes. Money but, and all yeah, that fun stuff. Yeah, money and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. But now there's there's a film with Taraji Henson that's, that's coming out where she's similar to an, uh, she's an assassin of some oh, sort. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. I would love to see her as an assassin. I would love to see that, too. Mm. But, yeah, so Dewanda Wise, who starred in Black Swan Theory and African Booty Scratcher, who is now just so out of touch. (laughs) Um, Everything. She's on Underground. Uh, She's going to be the new Nola Darling, and she's got to have it. That's right, yeah. The contemporary version. And... I'm really happy for her trajectory because she's always she's just always been so immensely talented. Like I could see it the the first time she auditioned for me. She went to NYU as well, um, undergrad. And yeah, just that sense of of a black female protagonist who's battling with isolation and feeling misunderstood and maybe dealing with some variation of mental illness these are things that I do like to explore in my black female protagonists. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of black female protagonists and stories that you're hoping to get funded as feature films, <laughs> your latest uh, short film is uh, Flowers, and mm-hmm. you co-wrote it and co-directed it with Yvonne Shirley. Yes. And it's it's streaming on HBO? Yes. So yeah. it's on HBO Go yeah. and HBO On Demand. Right. So... That you're hoping, like it seems like maybe there's yeah. a possibility it's going to be turned into a feature. That one is the closest that I'm getting to actually making it happen cool. for the first feature. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> so you, I know that you you mentioned earlier you're a teacher as well as a filmmaker. And the, the premise of this uh, short film is two girls who essentially are trying to 
in a way blackmail to some oh the short the short the short yes yes sorry i'm sorry about the feature oh well the feature is a little different but yes in the short on surface level it seems it appears that they're trying to blackmail a teacher yeah who and to be to be sure the teacher is not uh wholly innocent right and you make that clear in the the short film right um and again it's like another black like black female protagonists who are not they are not perfect they are not uh without some flaws Mm -hmm. but like they also aren't they're not evil they're not you know and can you talk a little bit about how your teaching sort of influenced these characters that you've written well first shout out to my co-writer co-director Yvonne (laughs) Michelle Shirley we were the only two black women in our NYU graduate film class um how how big was that class by the way 42 to 44 okay yeah. Um, but luckily, we also liked each other mm. and we meshed creatively. So that really worked out. Um, so teaching, I've been teaching full time at the Department of Education for go- for three years now. And I teach filmmaking. And it's really nice because some schools are becoming really innovative in terms of having the art form that students learn be film. Mm -hmm. So the accessibility is becoming more visible for students who typically wouldn't be exposed to filmmaking. So that is very gratifying. But also I've been able to kind of study teenagers even more um, and study just contemporary teenagers in New York City and how dynamic and innovative the black girls are in this city, in particular because they have so much freedom and so much access to other people in the world and locations. You hop on a train, you can go wherever you want. But it also makes them really vulnerable at the same time. And I think black girls get overlooked a lot in education because of, you know, the the buzzwords, uh, school to prison pipeline, those buzz phrases. You think of the males. You think of police brutality. You think of the males. You think of um, black boys being shot in the street. But... The reality of the situation is that it's just as dire, if not more, for black girls because there's also the element of being sexually abused Mm -hmm. at all times. Um, So we wanted to spotlight black female teenagers and just add to the canon of black girl coming of age films, but with a twist. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not it's not just illuminating black girls. It's definitely has an element of a revenge thriller. So we wanted to combine a few genres, but showcasing black girls at mm. the helm of the story. Mm-hmm. Has the has being on HBO helped in terms of getting funding? And and where are you in that? In that we're world? we're currently packaging everything for investors. You know, with black f- female filmmakers, we have to be a yeah. lot more non traditional in terms of how we seek funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't get to be the immediate darlings of the center reaches and the Tribeca's and the Sundances. So we, we are, we're co- compiling a list of, of independent funders, and we, we're also applying to grants simultaneously. But it's just so much more doable than any of our concepts have been individually because it's accessible, because it's teenagers, because it's Brooklyn, mm-hmm. um, and because we both work in education to some degree. So it's coming together. We're hoping to shoot. We, we wanted to shoot this summer, but we're, we're definitely going to shoot July 2018. Awesome. So a lot of your films are very very personal and you're making films about an experience that most audiences don't get to see on film or TV all the time. Now, you know, we, I think we all hope we want more inclusion when it comes to people of color um, and especially, you know, international people of color, not just Americans telling their own stories. And, but at the same time, I wonder, should we also, do you feel as though we should also be pushing more directors in general, regardless of their background, to be telling stories about people of color? The answer to that question is we need more access to a diverse crop of storytellers. And that means more Senegalese women. That means more Trinidadian women. That means more Iranian women. That means more... Korean men, like, we need more diverse storytellers. I don't think that equity hinges on telling all these white boys who keep directing these films to tell our stories. I think access is the answer. And and whether it's directing or um, screenwriting or producing, we need more access across the board because 
besides the creative, people aren't going to fight for you as hard as they typically would if you don't look like them. So seeking that funding, a black producer on average, is probably going to go the extra mile for a black director. So I think, you know, from top to bottom, editing, um, the black woman who edited Moonlight is now getting a lot of work. I can't remember Joy her McMillan. name. She was actually... I'm really excited We for had her. her on. Really? Yeah, she, we had her on uh, a few months back. Oh, my gosh. She's amazing. That's amazing. I'm yeah. so... I'm really excited. Like, I was so excited to see that a black woman co-edited that film. So just access across the board is the key to unlocking just the richness of how many stories we can tell in cinema. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was awesome having you This was amazing. Good luck with flowers. You, I... you reminded me of stuff that I've made. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It, it, when, you, when you go years back, it's like you forget, oh, did I do that? Yeah. 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 This was a great interview. Thank you. So that was my chat with Mikiatu. We'll provide links for you to check out her short films online via our show page. Up next, I chat with Wesley Harris. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This past spring, Leslie Harris joined us on the occasion of the 25th anniversary of Just Another Girl on the IRT. Her daring future debut about Chantel Mitchell, an exceptionally bright but emotionally immature Brooklyn teen that won the special jury prize at Sundance. We discuss the making of the film and what motivates her to stay in the industry after all of these years. Check it out. Welcome, Leslie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes. So we're actually celebrating the 25th anniversary of this film, which is crazy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Time goes by fast. Yes, yes. So Just Another Girl on the IRT is about a a young girl named Chantel, um, who is played by Ariana did I pronounce her name correctly? Ariane. Ariane Johnson. And it's about this girl in, in Bedside, in Brooklyn. And she is very headstrong, very um, determined to get out of her um, get, get out of her home life and not replicate her parents' um, um, unhappy life and unhappy marriage and and not be the stereotypical Brooklyn girl. And as you see, if you've seen the movie, that doesn't exactly happen, but it's it's a wild ride and all that fun stuff. And so I want to actually start with the fact that the end title card of this film has the name of the movie, and uh, then it says, A Film Hollywood Dared Not Do. And that was your um, line about the film. So I think there are some obvious reasons that we, especially people who are listening to the show, are probably aware of of why Hollywood would be afraid to do make this movie in 1993, um, in part because it has a black female protagonist, and we're still fighting to get those. I mean, A Wrinkle in Time, which is out now, that is sort of it's a rarity still to see a young black girl as a protagonist in a big movie or even in an independent film like yours. Um, so and that's as, 25 years later, and that's which 25 is really years shocking, later. right? Right. So, but. Can you talk a bit about, aside from the fact that it was a female-driven protagonist story, the other parts of it that sort of uh, made Hollywood afraid to do it? Because mm-hmm. it is a very, it's a very bold, explicit film. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, first of all, I wanted to hear women's voices, mm-hmm. and I wanted to have a character that was strong, opinionated, who wanted to know more about her culture, and I think that that's something that Hollywood wasn't doing then. Mm-hmm. Most of the films at that time in 1993 were films that were male-oriented. So if you don't go back, it's like Boys in the Hood. Menace to Society. <laughs> yeah, Hanging with the Homeboy, Juice. Juice. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That, that was like the Hollywood loved those stories and even occasionally would nominate them for Oscars, like with Boys in the Hood. Exactly. And also, the women were re- really like appendages. Mm-hmm. They were like either the mother or the sister or the girlfriend. And you didn't have a story that was solely 
focused on a young African-American woman and who and a very contemporary story. Mm-hmm. So that was why I put that statement, a film Hollywood dared not do. And like you said, for the obvious reason that there really were very few, if any, <laughs> um, theatrical films that dealt with a young black woman yeah. and her opinion about herself, her opinion about the world, her living as, as in a, one of the songs that in a mixed up world. Mm-hmm. So all that contributed to me putting that statement on the on the end of the film mm-hmm. and it was tough <laughs> getting the film done. You basically made it yourself, right? Like <laughs> you, <laughs> you basically finance. You, well, first, did you shop it around, and, and mm-hmm. people were just like, "No." And so then, like, how many no's, or wh- at what point did you get to where you're just like, "Okay, I just need to figure out how to make this myself." I think one of the reasons why I did that, uh, there was a point where I submitted the script to one of the many studios then, and they called me up and said, we really love the script. It's great. We'd love to do it. We have some good news and bad news. We love it. But could you make Tyrone a drug dealer? And I was like, well, that's not really what the story is about. You know, this character uh, is a young black man growing up in the neighborhood. And he's his mother is a principal of the backstory mm-hmm. that I wrote. I always write backstories to my characters. Yeah. And that they live in Brooklyn. And in Brooklyn, in the black community, there's always people who are wealthy or business owners. And then there are other people who may live in the projects. And that's kind of what the neighborhood is about. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and s- Tyrone, sorry, just uh, to so viewer, listeners know mm-hmm. who we're talking about, Tyrone is one of... Yeah, one of Chantel's boyfriends and and actually is the one who they eventually wind up getting pregnant together. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I wanted to show the dichotomy between the neighborhoods. And that was really an important plot point for me, Mm -hmm. um, that Chantel kind of lives in the projects and he lives in a a more bourgeois (laughs) kind of atmosphere. Yeah, he he drives a Jeep. Right. Which was a big deal. Right, (laughs) right. So they told me that because he drove a Jeep, they thought he was should have been a drug dealer. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> that doesn't really make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And that was like really the breaking point where I said, I have to make this film on my own and to get my story and the voice that I wanted out there um, to show the diversity in our communities mm-hmm. and that we aren't just the drug dealers or living in the projects or there's a lot of complexities to those uh, to people, to, to just, you know, human beings who live in Brooklyn yes, and are black. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, it's it's so funny to look at this movie now and see how much that neighbor, like all of Brooklyn has changed. It, it's just a perfect time capsule of what Brooklyn at one point looked at, looked like. And, you know, I live in Brooklyn now and I will readily admit that I am part of the gentrification that's happening in in my neighborhood. Um, but seeing even just like the name, the IRT, Verilyn, <laughs> Verilyn slacked me. And Verilyn's from, I mean, you're from Harlem, but still. I'm from the Bronx. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. Sorry. I knew that. <laughs> you're from the Bronx, Verilyn. But even Verilyn was like, what's IRT? Right. And it, that. Like I, I had never heard of it until the movie, and I even now it could slips my mind. What interborough transit? Inter- right, okay. interborough transit. W- when did they stop calling it that? They kind of still, in a way, like sometimes you'll hear it on the you know loud uh, overhead speakers. They uh, might say it. Maybe I missed that. But um, yeah, it's kind of old school, but <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of like it yeah. actually. I mean, so you're actually you. We're born in Cleveland, mm-hmm. and you grew up there. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what made you want to set this movie in in Brooklyn and not, you know, Cleveland mm-hmm. or even any like L.A. or wherever? Well, I moved to New York after um, I graduated from college, and um, I worked in advertising for a long time, and I really wanted to do a movie, and I had gotten a um, internship at. Uh, Foucault and Belding in their creative department. And so it just kind of, I just kept on working, 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 and it was just getting too much. And I was getting away from my true dream, mm. which was making movies. And that's what I studied in college, and that's what I love. And I grew up watching movies 
Um, I always say when you're talking about Cleveland, my brothers, I have two older brothers, and they were um, film fanatics. But they love foreign movies. Uh, (laughs) And I used to tag along sometimes to the uh, Cleveland Art Museum and Case Western Reserve and Cinematech with them to see movies. And this is when I was really young, like eight. Mm -hmm. So I grew up on, like, foreign movies. And so when I came to New York, this is, I kind of had my whole, I settled in Brooklyn. Mm. So... I really wanted to make a movie that reflected how I lived and what I saw every day taking the subway. Uh, and I actually quit my job and I did temp work just to pay the rent. Yeah. And I had a um, job at a nonprofit film organization where I would get access to equipment. Ah. And I would uh, ride the subway from my nine to five temp job to the night job. And uh, I would actually started writing the film on the subway because I would see young one young people who mm-hmm. would get on the subway and they would be loud and come just natural kids and people would go to the other car yeah <laughs> so I said what would they the the pe- people who were looking at them older workers were looking at them and not understanding who they were mm-hmm. and I said well what happens if I followed this young woman home and that's what I kind of wanted to do even with using handheld camera work, mm-hmm. kind of following her. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, the especially the fact that you use direct address with Chantel. She's frequently talking to the audience as if we're, we're right there with her. And she even has that moment early on where she says, everyone on the subway, when I'm with my friends, they think I'm this loud, uh, dumb woman, whatever. And But if they really knew me, they would know how smart I am. Yeah. And... I just found that really interesting just because I know I can be one of those people who, especially on the subway at a certain time of the day, the last thing I want is to be on a train where it's like nothing but kids coming home from school. Right. <laughs> I'm a, no. I have become the old <laughs> the old people. I think we all become that. <laughs> Eventually we do, yeah. But, but just having that sort of slice of life and like you said, not really having those examples from – because even when I think about the, the young coming of age – stories with black protagonists that have existed on screen they're not none of them are quite like Chantel they might be the friend mm-hmm. like the side character of what the the protagonist but you know even something like Eve's Bayou or um, Love and Basketball they they might have a little bit of attitude but mm-hmm. they're still very they they are quote unquote what like proper or mm-hmm. maybe more mature mm-hmm. what we would want what we what we would hope a kid would eventually turn out to be whereas she just doesn't care um at the same time though she you do see her as a very smart uh girl who has dreams yeah i wanted to show a real kid <laughs> a yeah. real young person who is a young woman coming of age 17 and not some someone who is like an idolized version of a real person. Right. I really wanted to make a multi-dimensional person. I'm glad that you actually saw that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's it, it is interesting. Although I think also you don't you you show how she she gets in her own way mm-hmm. a lot, especially, you know, the scene with the principal. I think it's the principal she's talking to. Chantel, you're one of my best students. Why are you always making Mr. Weinberg so angry? Yeah, that guy should be teaching gym, shop, or something. That's enough, that's enough, that's enough. But all I'm doing is expressing my opinion. Well, apparently you're expressing your opinion at the wrong time. Look, you can't go around preaching about the plight of black people in every history class. Oh, Mr. Moore, that is not fair. If you're cursing and your disruptions continue, I'll have to suspend you. Mr. Moore, you can't screw me up now. I want to graduate after my junior year. The rules are the In a previous scene, she was giving her teacher, her history teacher, a lot of hell mm-hmm. because he, you know, didn't want to teach about certain things that are important that she thought was important to them. And so she has a very she she has a very smart mouth. Um, <laughs> and the That's prin- an understatement. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the principal, you know, he, he points it out and he says, you have to act like a lady and you're not going to get anywhere if you don't. And so it's this weird dichotomy between like she's still a kid and and. Also, I should note Chantel is also, she wants to graduate early. Like, she has this dream to graduate early so she can get out. And he's like, you're not ready yet. You're not mature. And it's, it is interesting just because black women, I think we have all of these. Um, it's interesting. There's been a conversation happening. I don't know if you've been paying attention to it. But Tiffany Haddish has become this 
big figure and she was on the Oscars and Girls Trip put her on the map. And I've seen these conversations happening on social media about uh, she says whatever she wants and that's going too far. And we often have these questions. We're, we're, we're talking about these things with black, famous black women who act, quote unquote, hood mm-hmm. as Chantel does or is. Um, and we wonder, like, respectability politics, whereas she's not at all afraid. Chantel is not all, at all afraid of, of those things. And I'm curious what you think about, like, the way in which, you know, Chantel fits into this conversation and also, like, where black women are in terms of this whole respectability politics and acting like a lady and not being too, um, quote unquote, hood. Yeah. No, it's a great question. I mean, it's a great kind of um looking at our society in that way, especially for black women. I feel like for me, Chantel needed to be complex. And so I wanted to see a woman who had an opinion, who wasn't afraid to speak, and the whole film kind of reflects that mm-hmm. through the music. <laughs> yeah, but the Daddy's Little Girl song that mm-hmm. pops up frequently and, and sort of mirrors Chantel's relationship with her father. Right, and yeah. Mixed Up World, which is yeah. an R.B. song that... Angie Stone wrote for specifically for this movie. I didn't realize that was Angie yeah. Stone. <laughs> what? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, we just, I just wanted a whole kind of female driven movie that I felt like watching a lot of the movies because we hadn't seen women's voices. We haven't really, we didn't see women speaking. Uh, I wanted to break the fourth wall too. Um, I just felt that. It's a way to get a multidimensional character in here. And also, I was telling you I'm a fan of foreign films and Mm -hmm. a lot of films like Godard or, you know, they talk directly to the camera. And that was something that I kind of grew up on and I wanted to incorporate that to give and also to kind of in a story way show that Chantel is not really, is she telling the truth? Does she believe what she's saying? What is Mm -hmm. she telling us as the audience? So I'm putting kind of like the audience on a journey with her, like what's really happening? And when she's telling, you know, addressing the camera and addressing the audience, is she lying? Is she lying to herself? And then the audience goes with that and they don't know what's going on. (laughs) So it's a real like kind of I wanted to put that in there. But I think that there is that to answer your question, there is this dilemma that I think we as black women find ourselves in. Do we want to be so, how do we want to be perceived? Is is being loud, is being boisterous, is being opinionated? That has traditionally been, um, in movies, uh, we see like older movies where we see black women are stereotyped as being loud or being over-sexualized or being all that. And at the same time, we weren't really considered smart or having ambition. You know, Chantel wants to become a doctor. She wants to, you know, she's reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. She's complex. And I wanted to show that that can exist with us. And even now, sometimes I think that the character at that time was a little ahead of its time because now women, I think, are speaking out more. Mm-hmm. They're not afraid. And, uh, you know, with the Me Too movement, I think that that's something that we as uh, women need to do more. We need to speak up and we need to not fit in a box that maybe our male counterparts put us in. (laughs) Yes. So we're 25 years later from this movie. Where do you imagine, where do you imagine Chantel being at however old she would be now, like in her 40s? Well, I can't really say because I wrote a... IRT too. <laughs> okay, I I had heard you mentioning that. Okay, so there's an IRT two that might happen. <laughs> I hope so. If we can yeah. get financing for it, you mm-hmm. know, we can get like uh, people who are fans to kind of get out there and say they want to see this film mm-hmm. because um, and it, I really enjoy writing <laughs> this, the kind of sequel yeah. to it. Uh, I think it's needed now. Uh, There's a lot of things that were happening back then and in terms of um, women that we've progressed a lot. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the sequel shows that. So I'm kind of keeping a little quiet, give you a little. That's fair. Don't (laughs) don't spill all the the cookies. Not the cookies. The The tea. The tea. (laughs) Don't spill all the tea. But if you want to see it, you know, encourage people because it's really... Um, still challenging to see black women depicted on screen in a real way. 
And not even just, well, I mean, obviously the sequel, I imagine, would be Chantel 25 years later. But even just seeing girlhood. Like, I feel like we we do have quite a few examples of, you know, we have Insecure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying, uh, we had Girlfriends. Right. We had Living Single. Right. But seeing young black. Moesha when it was on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Moesha. Like, seeing adolescence, like mm-hmm. black girl adolescence is still, I think, very rare to see and you might get it on like an ensemble tv show mm-hmm. like blackish but it's it's uh, it, it is we we've come we've come far but we still i think we we also have gotten into this sort of not a rut but mm-hmm. we're seeing we're, we're seeing lots of shows with black characters who are like my age and older mm-hmm. which is great like right. i want i'm you know in my 30s now and I want to see that right. but I also would still love to see more like young black girl mm-hmm. uh, moments in, right. in, in movies which is why I think this movie is still so unique in that way yeah and you know it's interesting I think you're right about that because I get a lot of tweets with young people who I'm, I'm like you like this film I mean you weren't even born <laughs> when this film was made how could you relate to it yeah. but it seems like they do which is you know, really surprising, but very rewarding mm-hmm. and very touching for me after all these years that, you know, a young people would, you know, like this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, OK, you know, it's, it, I think it's, you know, I, I that was my whole thing as being a filmmaker. My goal was to I feel like a film should um, kind of sustain the test of time. Mm-hmm. A good film. When we talk about these things, it's crazy to me because this is your only feature film that you've made. And it's the same with Julie Dash, who directed Daughters of the Dust. And there are other you know, filmmakers who have only been able, female black filmmakers of that sort of mm-hmm. era of your peers who were not able to make more than maybe one or two movies after their, the movies that like put them on the map. Mm-hmm. And it's it's crazy to me to think that now, now we have thankfully people like Ava and Dee who are making movies and are being able to make more mm-hmm. than one film. But you know, can you just talk a little bit? Like, what is it for you that makes you determined to stay in this industry, and what like drives you, and what makes you um, just want to keep going at it, even when people keep <laughs> slamming the door in your face right. and and not you know not giving you the opportunity to tell these stories outside of, you know, short films or, you know, smaller platforms. When you're depicting multidimensional black women, it's still challenging to get those movies financed, and especially theatrical movies. And I feel sometimes we don't see as many um, stories, like I said, about black women in history or different types of movies. Mm-hmm. So like I, I have a movie where I'm hopefully will be doing soon called I Love Cinema. Oh yes. Is that the movie that you were hoping to have Michael Moore right. involved with? Right. So yes. he agreed to be in it. Yeah. And it's it's um it kind of, it comes from my my kind of love of movies. Mm-hmm. But it's also very political mm-hmm. <laughs> and very um different. Um and those when it's when you have movies that maybe don't fit into kind of the traditional black women's stories, it's still challenging. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like what keeps me going is my love for cinema, my love for movies. And I do feel that times change and that people might be more receptive now than they were 25 years ago to the stories that I need to tell that are inside of me. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, I don't really get down about it. I just keep on, I think tenacity is important in this business mm-hmm. and loving what you do. And I also think that now we ha- we need to have more black executives making decisions. So before we let you go, the question that I ask all of my guests mm-hmm. at the end of each interview, I will ask you, okay. which is, when is the last time you saw yourself in a film or TV show or a character where you felt as though you were represented? And it can't be something you have been involved with right. personally. Hmm, that's a very 
interesting mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ooh, um, hmm, I have to kind of really. I know I put you on the spot. But yeah, <laughs> take your time. Sometimes it takes folks. I know a little, a while. little time to mm-hmm. kind of think of something. Um, I would think like being Mary Jane, in the sense that I love to see a woman who has goals and who has ambition and drive and who, um, I love the fact that she's in an environment where you see her work environment and not so dependent on, um, um, you know, I like the aspect of the show that deals with her kind of in, inner drive. Mm-hmm. And her relationship with her best friend slash producer right. on the show which is, I think, I'd say at least 60 to 75 percent of the time passes the Bechdel test. Like mm-hmm. they're not talking about him. Like obviously they talk about their relationships, but they're also they have that they have plans to like get to the top together, which I think is right. Great. Yeah, I yeah. like that. Yeah, that idea. And I also like the fact of getting a contemporary character that um, it's like you want to see where we're going to progress. You want to see where she's going to go. Mm-hmm. And I always like that, looking towards the future. Mm-hmm. I may have to think about this a bit. That was a tough question and a good question. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you might be the first person who said being Mary Jane. And, I, and, I, <laughs> and I'm happy you did because I do think that that show goes underrated. It, it's one of those shows that I watch and I always forget when it's coming. Like, I, it's not completely on my radar, right. but once I remember or once I find out that the new season's coming, I'm just like, yes, I can't wait. And I love her clothes. Her clothes, so that's her clothes are amazing. <laughs> and yes. so that's kind of um, a thing, too. I really love to see, like, fashion, and I'm, like, into kind of, even though I don't wear, you know, the fashion, but I love the art of fashion. And so... You look like a director. <laughs> you do. I mean it as a compliment. You look, you dress like a... Comfort. Yes, for comfort. I mean, you have to run around set. Right. Ava, does, Ava has her baseball cap. You know, that's you know that's what a filmmaker usually looks like, is someone who wears a baseball cap, not yeah. just a white guy. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, thank you. They should, that was really great. And I enjoyed so much. Oh, great. I enjoyed talking to you, and I hope we see more of you behind the camera very soon. You will. (laughs) Thank you. And that's it for our second to last episode of Represent. Stay tuned next week for our final episode where we'll bring back some old faves, reminisce, and say some final words. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verlyn Williams. Our social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band, The Town Social. Until next time.